Welcome to High Energy Health, where together we explore the leading edge of wellness and happiness. I'm your host, Dawson Church. By choosing this time together, you're declaring your commitment to a positive mindset, elevated emotions, and a great life. Thanks for joining me for today's episode. Hello and welcome to High Energy Health. I am so delighted you're here to share with us today because this show can make a real difference in your life. As you know, we've been doing a whole series of shows lately that give you practical tools and draw on the wisdom of scientists, visionaries, educators, coaches, therapists, and we draw in ideas from the best in the world and then make them practical to your life. So I encourage you to listen with a pencil and paper or a device you can make notes on because a lot of the ideas we'll have here in the show for you today are actionable things you can actually do and ways you can shift and as you tune into this episode of the show other episodes of the show too you will see that there is so much you can do practically to make a difference in your life so i'm glad you're here i'm glad you're tuning into high energy health make it a habit every week make this part of your mental uplift and hygiene routine every week to tune into a new episode there's a lot going on and we have some amazing guests lined up in the future as well i know we have a producer for the show and other people who are involved and we look every week at what our metrics and are and we notice that every week more and more people are listening and sharing and really giving us great comments on what they hear and also what they do what they're inspired to actually implement in their lives so thank you for being one of those people and we're so grateful that you're part of this community and we know you'll get a ton out of being here i'm so glad you're here my guest today is Dr. Fred Travis. Dr. Fred Travis graduated from Maharishi International University in 1988, and he now serves as the director of the Center for Brain, Consciousness, and Cognition at the university. His work has focused on brain development from birth to adulthood and the effects of meditation on the brain, as well as markers of higher states of consciousness, peak performance, and also the effects of ancient Indian Vedic practices like yoga postures, and sacred literature. Fred has published over 90 papers and book chapters and has authored or co-authored four books. He lectures globally on brain and consciousness. You can find him at drfredtravis.com and that's dr, 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 fredtravis.com. Fred, it's such a pleasure to have you here. Thank you, Dawson. I'm really happy to be able to speak with you. Well, Fred, I've just been reading some of your papers in preparation to chatting with you today, and I'm so intrigued by the simple but elegant ways you've found of measuring what's going on both in our experience and also in our brains. And so let's go back to the beginning, 1988. <laughs> That's before some of our listeners were born. <laughs> and what what brought you into this field? Uh, what brought me to the field was brain patterns are an objective mirror of intersubjectivity. So you can use the hard tools of modern science to validate growth of intersubjectivity, to explore and to understand experiences through meditation practices. So that's what brought me into it. And that's what's kept me in the field. 
You know, it's amazing too that you mentioned hard science and practices like meditation were regarded as being, you know, nice. You felt better like 30, 40 years ago. There was no sense in which they had any link to anything that was real or or biologically active. And uh, now, of course, we know that that's just the reverse. Yes, it's the point is meditation experiences are felt experiences, embodied experiences. They're not something imagined. They're not something made up in the brain. They're actually fundamentally different experiences of inner subjectivity. Different meditations take different angles. It could be focus and control like Vipassana, Zen. Could be more open monitoring as in mindfulness or zazen or it could be automatic self-transcending where you start with thinking and just end up with being each of these procedures all of these procedures are different but what they have in common is they're exploring inner subjectivity again those are embodied experiences and because they're embodied we can use the physical markers that we have that we've looked at waking and sleeping and stress effects and so on to look at what's growing in terms of growing higher states of consciousness and that embodied emphasis is really quite unlike what I see when I look at ancient societies where to have those experiences, you had to remove yourself from society that people went and lived in the Himalayas, they went and lived in monasteries and convents. And even in many of the mystical traditions, there's a real emphasis. I mean, you read the Crest Jewel of Illumination, or you read some of the other great spiritual texts, and they're all about getting away from the body, you know, this body is sort of gross and corrupt and be transcended. And here you're talking about being in the body. Exactly. The body is the carrier. It's like the carriage. And the person inside the carriage is our soul, our universal ego. If you have an analogy that I work with, we have the sun, the sun shines everywhere the same. It's reflected differently due to different reflectors. In this analogy, pure consciousness is our universal self, the self of everyone on earth. The reflector is the physical body. The reflection of the sun in the physical body is our individuality, our individual experience, and so on. So what you can do is by measuring the physiology, the reflector, asking them about their reflection, their subjective experience, you can get an understanding of their relationship. And the relationship is strong. One is the other. They're different sides of the same coin. What's being added with the meditation traditions is where does the sun come from? Why are we conscious? Why aren't we just robot? It's because there is that fundamental field which interacts with the physiology and in mind, body, behavior, and experiences. So this is the important point. We have to respect our body. We, If the body is strong, meditation experiences are clearer. Good rest, good exercise, good food, we use our mind for positive things. What that's going to do is prepare the temple of the soul so that when we sit and transcend, that experience of inner unboundedness can be clearer and fuller. One uh, thing I'm sure you like it off sometimes is what David Denning called, Denning called the hard problem. And the hard problem is how something as intangible and mysterious and powerful as consciousness arose from the brain. And I'm just wondering if you ever get asked the hard problem and what your answer to that is. Yes, the hard problem is a result of a materialistic paradigm that matter comes first. That's the model. It's given us a great deal of advances in terms of understanding, dealing with diseases, understanding longevity, public health, and so on. But it's hit an explanatory gap, which you just brought up. How can a mass of tissue, electrochemical activity in mass of tissue, which is localized in time and space, but do something consciousness, which is outside of time and space? That hard problem has plagued science for 30 years. Now, the model isn't sacred. It's just a model that's been embraced by many people. And Dr. Nader specifically, he's written a book 
book, One Unbounded Ocean of Consciousness, he says, well, let's start with another model. Let's start with consciousness as primary. Consciousness interacts with itself. It creates patterns within itself. And these patterns within consciousness are the patterns that reflected in the physical world. And this isn't just some way out thing. Philip Goff in panpsychism, suggesting that consciousness pervades the universe. David Chalmers, who coined the hard problem, is saying we need some radical ideas. Maybe consciousness is a primitive. It's a fundamental building block, along with time and space, that creates matter. So all of science is beginning to realize we've been at a standstill for 30 years. The only way to go forward is we need to come up with a new model. You know, when I was writing the book Mind to Matter, I wouldn't say I was agnostic, but I certainly was very open-minded. I wanted to see if I imagined between mind and matter, there were, I would find some many scientific links in the chain and many gaps as well. So what I thought I'd be presenting in the book when I began writing the book was, okay, there, there are three or four links here. Then there are five or six missing. Then there are two or three more. Then there's one. Then there's another gap. And then eventually, you know, I'll have laid out a nice a nice explanation of where we have links and where we, where we don't. And what I was amazed to find in the course of several years writing the book, Fred, there were no missing links. Or we could show the, the, the whole chain from mind to matter. And then I, I didn't, you know, I didn't know about those ideas of that research, but I then began to look at, at some of the experimental evidence that shows that people can, certain people, I mean, not all people, and we'll talk about who and in what brain states people can do this, but how they affect things like the strong nuclear force, the weak nuclear force, and electromagnetism and gravity. And I came across this research. And a lot of it wasn't very well known, but it showed that people can affect all four of the fundamental forces of physics. And I'm sitting there thinking, and I mean, not just a little bit, sometimes, you know, 10, 20% fluctuations in electromagnetism that can be explained no other way other than by consciousness. And so I began to realize that if consciousness can affect all four forces of physics, consciousness must underlie all forces, four forces of physics. So I didn't take the idea any further, but I was so struck by that idea when I was reading the experimental evidence. Good for you. What a great insight. It shows you're a good scientist. A scientist puts aside their preconceptions. They look at what science presents, and then they say, what do we see here? And too often, we're blinded by our preconceptions, blinded by our paradigms, and so on. And if you look at science, I think what just what you said is very true. Science is beginning to realize that we're not isolated billiard balls colliding on the pool table of life. We're intimately connected in a very powerful way. And now science is beginning to try to quantify those connections. Yeah, yeah, it is. And so before the we began talking today, I was reading some of your papers, and you had very kindly emailed me a few to illustrate some questions I had about your work. And I, I just want to say those papers are so elegant, because they use questionnaires that are quite brief, like the peak experiences scale, I think it only has five questions, but uh, those eliminate different parts of the experience. And then you're correlating those to brain states, what's happening on the EEG, and you're able to draw then straight line comparisons between this is happening in the mind, in the experience, and this is what's happening in the brain. Please go ahead and share that experimental structure with us. And then next question will be about the groups in whom you measured this. And then finally, how we can apply this to our own lives. Excellent. So first, the what I try to do in all my research is have something physiological, you know, that's hard, but it gives you a number which is almost meaningless, 0 0.7, 0 0.8, you know, so what? Standardized tests. So that gives 
some look at subjectivity, but again, that's giving us numbers. It's missing the real experience and then interviews. And what the interviews are telling you is what's really happening. And then by reading the interviews, I then reflect, okay, what do I find in the felt experience that they're telling me that's not found in these standardized tests? And that's pretty much my research, how I, I do all of my research. And one recent one, which I found very intriguing, is I looked at that survey of peak experiences that you mentioned. And I also looked at the survey the, the BIS-BAS, Behavioral Approach, Behavioral Inhibition Scale. That is, how are you motivated to act? Is it for reward? Is it for drive and growth? Or is it inhibition? Is it out of fear? Is it reactive? And what I expected is growth of higher states. We would see growth of behavioral approach. You would be more motivated to act due to reward and so on. But what I found was this inverse correlation. People reporting more transcendence, eyes closed, transcendence in daily activity, actually had less behavioral approach motivation. That is, they weren't, their motivation to act wasn't due to some of the statements are when I do something well, I'm motivated to continue to do it. And I think it's bringing in a whole different paradigm, a whole different view of life. Because as you're growing towards higher states, you're less identified with your individual body and nervous system and social standing. And you're identifying more with that inner unbounded self, which you are. Your action is coming from that inner orientation. Your action is responding to the need of the time. It's not responding to the environmental reflections. So this is just an example of some of the research. Yeah. And I know we've had a, a really tough time with this with some of the people and some of the courses that I've been studying because they're entering these transcendent states and they're often high achievers and they're often <laughs> high achievers about those transcendent states. It's like, I'm going to really <laughs> transcend. And so, you know, they bump along for a while, but eventually they, they start to get there. And then things happen. Like there's a stage that the great Indian sage Ramana Maharshi talks about where you just lose all motivation and they do. And so this person was a top producing realtor or or <laughs> someone with all this drive to what in their career or in their family life or whatever their field of uh, the chosen field might be. I mean, they get to this point where they have, they just basically are in the flow and they're accepting of everything that is very di different state and all that goal setting, those vision boards, those index <laughs> cards with their intentions, they all just oh, go away. <laughs> that is so beautiful. Yeah. The phrase that Maharshi Mahesh Yogi uses, you respond to the need of the time. You respond to what is required required in this situation. And what that means is you're responding to help your you, your local area, your community to grow. Because that's, I think, all activity is motivated by desire to grow, to expand, to become more. And it's just at the source, okay, where is the lack? Rather than an individual person, the lack is more in that underlying field, which is governing the trees and governing the animals and governing the people. And you actually act to maximize all of those. How does that show up for you in your personal experience, in your personal life? Simplicity. I think, as you said, being in the flow, you don't have so many, your mind isn't filled with thoughts. You still think, you still plan. But what I've realized is once I have the plan, I have to let go. So many times, and I'm sure you've done this, you have, okay, when this person says this, I'm going to bring up these points. You get into the meeting, this person says this, you bring up other points because the correct thing to say at that time is not what you planned one week, one year ago or something. So that's what I find, just a greater easiness and also joy. There's just a simplicity, enjoying watching the leaves unfolding in springtime it might seem very mundane. It's thrilling to think that nature is doing that. 
Yeah, Brother Lawrence, that was his awakening experience. He wrote The Practice of the Presence of God, and he just one day was staring at a tree and it's watching its leaves unfold. And that was his enlightenment experience. That was that was it for him. So it's simple things and, and we priorities change when it happens. I also want to, the second thing you mentioned is joy. And again, Ramana Maharshi said that, what and then many different kinds of, of yoga and many different kinds of spiritual practices you can do that will stimulate awakening. But he said that the commonality, regardless of path, is, is joy. And you do just find this in people who are who are whatever religion they come from, spiritual tradition they're from, whatever their, their practice is, there is this pervasive sense of just bliss in many of them. And it's just so wonderful to connect on that level. How does that show up for you? And how does it feel for you in your, your personal life? You might capture it with the idea from Maslow of growth motivation versus deficiency motivation, and that you never act because of something that's deficient, but you want to grow and expand. In that process, it is a process of increasing charm. That's what's drawing you forward. The, the charm is because you're growing. And if you're growing, it's feeding back to say, okay, continue to do this. And so life just becomes a matter of there's a challenge, but you know you have the ability to overcome the challenge. And you work, you overcome the challenge, it gives you a great fulfillment. And then you move on, there's some other need. And the whole time is the happiness is not dependent on the outside activity. I live in Fairfield, Iowa, and wintertime is sometimes dreary and cold. And I go outside and I just feel good. There's no reason to feel good. It's 20 degrees, it's windy, but I feel good because it goodness is not coming from an individual experience. The goodness is coming from inside, just that inner fullness inside becomes a basis of all the activity outside. I know the preeminent probably 20th century example of that was Viktor Frankl. And he talked about how one has a choice. There is stimulus, there's response. And in between there's a gap, there's a space where we choose. And so even in Auschwitz, he was able to make that choice to be compassionate and to be wise, intelligent, kind, even in the absolute brutality of the concentration camp. And so if he can do it there, surely we can do it when we're faced with an Iowa winter or here in California, <laughs> uh, an, an atmospheric river. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, Victor Frankl was incredible. From that experience, realizing that will to meaning is a basic drive. What an incredible depth of person that he could see beyond the actual outer circumstances and see that is what was important. Friends, something that really bothers me is when I teach classes and I do a lot of workshops and I meet a lot of people and so many of them are suffering and they're suffering unnecessarily. They're suffering because of just made up stuff in their minds. They're worried about this, that, or the next thing. Often it's really, I mean, it's not life-threatening. And yet, of course, to their reptilian brain, to their emotional system, it runs through that system as though it was a real threat to their survival. And, you know, just to say, I'm so, I'm motivated by, by seeing that suffering and thinking, what can I do? You know, what can I, how can I help? And so there's that pattern we have nowadays of, of acting as though we're, we're in the middle of a, a hostile environment when modern humans just aren't the way our Paleolithic ancestors were. So how, does, how, do you, how do you see that? How does that strike you? Yeah, this is a key point. And one of the points you said in the beginning about people seeking other experiences, because the experience changes the brain, the experience rewires the brain, and especially the initial, as you said, reptilian, the emotional response. And so the experiences you choose can rewire how you automatically respond in another situation. As you said, the suffering on one level is unnecessary, but it's a real suffering for that person. They're really hurting. They don't have to hurt. What they can do is realize who they are. And it can be simple 
simply a yoga practice in terms of the physiology. It can be sleep, just getting a good night's sleep. You actually perceive the world differently. Research is showing now that stress doesn't exist out in the world and it's waiting to creep in, but stress is our perception of the situation, our perception of the situation. And the perception on some level is governed by cognitive framing, but it's more fundamentally governed by this low road initial response. And to pattern, to program the low road response, this is where meditation practice comes in, especially transcending where you experience yourself as whole, as full, as complete, as growing, as untouched by change. That's a concrete experience you have. That's an embodied experience. Brain waves are different. Breath is different. Autonomic functioning is decreased and so on. This is very real and it's helping to rewire your brain. So when you come out of meditation, you go into the same situation, you say, oh, this isn't so bad. And in that way, we can come out of suffering. It's by turning within. We need to go to a break right now. You're listening to High Energy Health. For more on Fred's work, his books, please go to his website, drfredtravis.com, drfredtravis.com. Again, you're listening to High Energy Health. My name is Dawson Church. We'll be back after a break. Hello and welcome back to High Energy Health. I'm your host, Dawson Church. Each week on the show, I share with you inspiring ideas, inspiring people, people who are practicing what they preach. And of course, I encourage you to practice yourself as well. So do yourself a favor and really take these ideas to heart. They're meant to be inspiring. They're meant to have you open to new possibilities. They're all to do with hard science. They're about what science shows us is real and possible for us. And they're meant to be actionable. Actionable meaning you take action on them. You sit there with a pen and paper or with your device and you make notes and you apply them then in your life. If you are applying the insights in high energy health every single week as you are in listening to the show, then what you'll find is that after a few weeks, a few months, your life is going to be changed. What happens is when we change inside our heads, the world outside our heads changes. And in my book, Mind to Matter, I, I talk about the whole idea of consciousness and how consciousness is not something that arises from a complex brain. That's the hard problem that has been postulated in consciousness studies is the question of, well, you know, brains became more and more and more complex over the course of evolution. Eventually, we have the human cranium, which has our ancient reptile brain at the core. On top of that is our limbic system, our mammalian brain. Perched on top of that uh, is our primate brain, our neocortex. And then in the very front is our human brain, our the prefrontal cortex. So there are all these parts to the brain. And the question in consciousness research is, how did consciousness arise in this mass of gray tissue. And as we shared with several of our guests, that's really question is an artifact of the material way of thinking that consciousness does not arise from the brain. In fact, there's virtually nothing in science suggesting that science shows that consciousness is derived from information fields, information fields all around us. There's what a great Jesuit priest of the 1950s called Théo de Chardin called the psychosphere or the noosphere, the consciousness of the planet, the consciousness of universe, from that our brains are like transceivers. Like, you know, 
listen to this show on a device and then think, oh, I'm looking at my phone right now. I'm listening on to my on my phone. Therefore, in this hardware somewhere, Dawson is talking to me right now. And then you pick apart the phone and say, well, is it this circuit or is this circuit? Is it the screen? Where is Dawson in here? I'm searching all over the circuit. Can't find him. That's what we've been doing with consciousness. We've been looking at the brain, the receiver, and saying, where is consciousness in this mix? And of course, consciousness is not in the receiver any more than this show is coming to you from the device you're listening to it on. Consciousness comes from these information fields outside of ourselves, beyond our bodies and our minds. And it is powerful to tap into those consciously. Now, when you know this, that is the piece of insight that changes everything, because you then start to be able to tap into that stream of consciousness. And you do it in all kinds of ways. You do it through meditation. So in meditation, you sit down, you may use a technique like eco meditation, maybe you're using one of the other many styles of meditation that is available to you. And you're quietening your body, quietening your breath, slowing down, giving yourself a break from that busy life. And in that break and that pause, you can tap into those universal information fields. Isn't that exciting? You literally tap into those information fields, and they are full of knowledge and wisdom and insight. Albert Einstein came up with this theory of relativity. He was wrestling with it. Actually, he was at a point of real frustration in his life. He knew what he wanted to discover, and he couldn't find it. One night in despair, he went to sleep, had a dream. In the dream, he saw this parable. That parable contained the concept of the theory of relativity. He woke up, he had the idea, he then worked out the mathematics and published his famous two papers on the general and specific theory, special theory of relativity. And he mentioned later on in his life, he said, all great scientific discoveries are made in altered states of consciousness. All great scientific discoveries. And if you look at the periodic table of elements, Dmitry Mendeleev, the Russian chemist, was also just wrestling with this whole problem of how to put all of the known elements into a structure that made sense. And he again, in an altered state, just suddenly saw the whole periodic table floating in front of him, woke up and wrote it down. Albert Kakuli, the benzene ring, all kinds of other scientific studies, discoveries were made this way. Great art. Rembrandt van Rijn, the great Dutch master, said that the artist is a channel for something beyond himself or herself. Piet Mondrian, the, the great modern artist, said that the artist is just the servant of something that is in that great universal consciousness. So great artists, great philosophers, great writers, great novelists, great scientists have all had this experience of tapping into something far greater than themselves, downloading that, and then experiencing that in external consciousness. What is your greatness? What is your genius? What might you be downloading from those universal information fields? You won't know until you make that space in meditation and detach your focus from lateral reality. We all have this lateral reality, these things happening around us, local reality. I call it in my book, Mind to Matter. Local reality is what's happening today and yesterday and tomorrow and in the physical world around me. And it, we need to be really good at navigating that local reality. But if all you do is spend your life immersed in local reality as though that's all it is, 
you've missed the main event. <laughs> you've missed the show. That's just the preview. That's the curtain raiser. That's the cover band. The real thing is non-local reality. And that's where you get brilliant, genius ideas. And then you're able to express and bring them through your brain, your body into what we think of as local reality. But as Albert Einstein did, as Pete Mondrian did, as, as all of these great philosophers and artists and scientists did, you tap into something larger than yourself. And what is yours? You know you have it in you. You know that there's that untapped potential inside of you. You just know that there's greatness within. It just is a matter of connecting with it and then expressing it in the outside world. So that's my big question for you today is what is your genius? What is that brilliant thing that only you can bring forth into the local world? When you get quiet, when you get calm, when you detach yourself from local reality, when you silence your busy mind, when you use eco-meditation to slow your breath and move into your parasympathetic rest and digest relaxation mode, and now you're letting go of your preoccupation with local reality, what non-local reality might you tap into and then download into local reality. I know for a while I painted. I had a very brief career. It lasted just a few years as a painter. And I did that. In fact, I, I just was good at slowing down, stilling my mind, tuning in, and I just paint something. And I remember painting faces at one point and getting a, a one-man show of all my paintings of faces. And an I don't even paint a few a few months when I did that. And an artist who, friend of mine who'd been been painting her whole life walked in and said, wow, you're painting faces in watercolors. She said, faces are the hardest thing to paint using watercolors. I was thinking, I'm glad I didn't know that. I didn't know that. No one told me faces were hard to paint. I just learned to paint faces and downloaded them and painted faces. And then she was saying, you have a one-man show. I said, yeah, I had a one-man show last month as well at a different gallery. She said, one-man shows, one-person shows are so hard to get. I was thinking to myself as she said that, I didn't know that either. <laughs> I just, uh, I, I, I was not encumbered by that piece of belief. So I just manifested a couple of one-man shows back to back. And, you know, so again, you have things that you are meant to bring forth. What are they? They may not be paintings. Maybe they're not science. Maybe they're, they're love of people or animals. Uh, for, for my wife, her genius is connection. She's a connector of people. And she's just brilliant at doing this in a way in which hardly anyone I know is. That's her genius, her gift. That's her, her download from non-local is the ability to instantly, within a few moments, connect with new people and make them feel loved, at ease, and at home. So ask yourself that question. What is your genius? As you quieten down, as you allow an opening for connection with non-local mind, what's your genius? What might you manifest? We're going to a break right now. Please stay tuned. My name is Dawson Church. You're listening to High Energy Health. We'll be right back after a break. Hello and welcome back to High Energy Health. 
My name is Dawson Church. I encourage you to make this show a habit in your life. Listen to it every week and feel yourself being uplifted. Feel the joy that flows through our wonderful guests, through our wonderful community, and through these amazing ideas. Also, if you'd like to check out my most recent books, my most recently published book is called Bliss Brain. You can get a free copy at blissbrain.com, blissbrain.com. And in that, I share the science behind ecstatic states. Peak ecstatic states are real. And in these states, people have extraordinary experiences. And we find these peak states are present for scientists, for athletes, for academics and scholars. They're for business people, entrepreneurs, people in offices, people in all walks of life have at least some occasional peak states. And so that book explains the science of peak states, also how we can catalyze those peak states in our lives. Because it's great to have a peak state. It's great, great to go for a walk on the beach and look down at your feet and see the, the sand under your toes and feel the water and maybe watch a sunset. Maybe you have a peak state while you're holding a baby. Maybe your peak state comes from playing music. You get lost in the music you're playing. Maybe your peak state comes from somewhere else. But those peak states are usually an occasional happy accident for people. How about if rather than an occasional happy accident, they were something you experienced on a daily basis and they became so frequent, they start to blend together and become your life. That's the beauty of science because it's showing us how we can not just experience peak states, how we can actually induce peak states where they weren't there before. So there is that experience of a peak state and then there's not being in one and there are triggers that will literally bring about a peak state when you aren't in one already. They're easy to do. They're not hard. They're body-based. You'll find all of them in my eco-meditation tracks. You can get that free at ecomeditation.com. And in those tracks, you'll find you're able to induce those peak states really, really quickly. And they'll take you to that ecstatic feeling in your body and in your mind. So you want to not only pursue peak states, you want to cultivate them and then trigger them in your life on a daily basis, ideally through your morning meditation. So more of that at blissbrain.com. There are also eight meditation tracks you get free once you picked up the book at that website, thisbrain.com. And just use them again, you'll feel yourself moving into those elevated states. The other book I published recently is called Mind to Matter. And you can see that book at mindtomatter.com. And the cool thing about that book is that it has all the links in the chain from thought to thing, how we literally turn our thoughts into things. And when I began writing the book, I thought this is going to be a great scientific pursuit for a few years. I'm going to read the science, read the studies, interview the scientists, and I'm going to figure out how many links there are in the chain between thought and thing. And then I'm going to chart the ones that we know and we can prove experimentally are real. And then, of course, there'll be many things in that chain from mind to matter we can't prove in science, at least not prove yet. So it'll be like a chain with a few links here, a few missing links, a few links there, more missing links, and eventually we wind up at our other end of the chain matter. So all, all, the, all the causal steps between mind and matter. And that was my intention. I'll, I'll trace these. I'll have a really interesting book that is a starting point to explain what those links are between mind and matter and also where the missing links are. And to my amazement, I discovered experiments that gave us every single one of those links. And so by the end of the book, 
every single link was there in the causal chain from thought to think. Now, that doesn't mean that we can think about something and it appears instantly. Like, for example, I can't visualize a pink flamingo here in the corner of my office, and there's a pink flamingo there. That's just magic, and that isn't possible at the ordinary level of manifestation. But I can think about something that is a desire or that is a preference I have, and that will tend to happen in my life. And the more I'm into meditation, the more I'm into mindfulness, the more I'm doing tapping and calming myself, the more likely it is. Fred Travis has a paper in which he measures this, and he measures the level of brain function of high performers and people who are just at a level of ordinary reality. And he measures this in, in, in different professions. He has one paper on athletes, and he, he compares high-performing athletes to athletes at ordinary levels. He has a second paper on managers, top-performing managers and ordinary-performing managers. So athletes, managers, and musicians. He's also measured this in musicians. And again, he compares the peak performers with those who just have ordinary levels of skills. And he finds that the peak performers all have significantly higher levels of flow states, but they also have significantly higher levels of synchronous experiences in their lives. So it's not just happening in here, it's happening out at the level of reality as well. Literally, they're experiencing more synchronicity, more manifestation in their outer lives as well. So they can't magic a pink flamingo into existence. But if they have a preference, if they like to see something happen, the chances of it happening are greater if they're in that peak state. And is measuring those peak states, not just in the dimension of subject of reality, like questions that have to do with me being in flow, he's measuring this at the level of neural function. He's hooking people up to electroencephalographs, EEGs, and measuring their brain function. And when they're in brain synchrony, then that brain synchrony is correlated with flow. So flow isn't just a subject of experience. Flow is object of experience in terms of brain function. And then the cool thing is, it's not just merely individual, if that extends to the world outside of them, and they have greater numbers of synchronicities in their everyday life. So if you want to cultivate synchronicity in your everyday life, it is well worth cultivating that synchronized brain. Take time to do eco-meditation every morning. Download that free eco-meditation track. Frame your life that way. Deliberately catalyze your movement into those peak states as your first act of the day. What can be a greater act of self-care and self-love than to deliberately induce this kind of state every single day of your life? First thing, it's your first priority. Your first priority isn't other people's emails. Your first priority isn't the news. Your first priority isn't checking your social media or your texts. Your first priority is your own self-love, your own self-care, your own mental and physical well-being. That's job number one. You get that right, all the rest flows much more easily. So I encourage you to make meditation your daily practice. Make meditation what you do. Become a meditator. Make meditation your primary activity you do early in the day. It will frame your life and you will have a much better life as, as you move through the rest of your day. Start your day with that act of self-care. Start your day by tuning into something greater than yourself. 
start your day by moving into that level of non-local mind and all the imagination, all the creativity, all the wisdom, all the love that's in there. And then you are using your brain for what it's meant to do. It's meant to be a transceiver, or a receiver of this and a translator of this into your local reality. You then have this positive feedback loop. The things that you are focused on are synchronously likely to happen. For me, this happens in all kinds of, of amazing ways. People that I haven't heard from for years suddenly will email me, or a scientist I haven't talked to for 10 years will send me a link to a paper and say, you know, I just had this intuition to send this paper, paper to you, and I'll open the paper, and it's the very paper I need for my next science project. <laughs> you just get used to it after a while. Now, initially, you're like, whoa! This is happening again, fifth time today. And after a few days, weeks, months, years of it, you just know we live in a synchronous holographic universe. And you just expect that when you're in flow, you are in flow with everyone else who's in flow. And in the last chapters of Mind to Matter, I show the experimental evidence for this. One of the, the fascinating series of studies, I reported the very first study in the first edition of Mind to Matter. Now in the more recent editions of Mind to Matter, I have updated studies. And these show what, what the heart coherence pattern of somebody who's used to being in coherence, they're highly mindful, they have that heart-brain synchrony that we know is associated with higher states of consciousness. And it's a 30-day measurement of their heart coherence level. And it looks like a series of hills and valleys. And it's done by putting a heart coherence monitor on their chest and tracking them every moment of every day for 30 days. That heart coherence individual readout is paired in mind to matter with solar activity, huge cosmic scale activity. What's happening to solar radiation, solar activity over the course of a month? And what we see in that graph is that the two track each other. The, the hills and valleys of the individual in heart coherence track solar activity. In other words, this per person is not just internally coherent, this person is coherent with cosmic movements like of our sun. And then again, that person is coherent with everyone else who's coherent with our sun. So that again, you have all these people in coherence all over the globe. So I invite you to be one of those coherent people. Bring the magic of mind, great non-local mind into your local mind, and then see the effects in matter. I want that for you. I know you have genius to bring forth. We don't know what it is until you still your mind, give yourself that space of synchrony, take that active self-care of meditating every morning, being still, tuning into that great non-local information field, and then seeing that move through and live in your everyday life. I know this is you. I know this is what you deserve and what you can manifest in your life. And I look forward to seeing you there and joining you there. Speaking of joining, please join me every week for another episode of High Energy Health. I'm your host, Dawson Church. Till next week, be healthy, be happy. Every blessing. Thank you. Thank you.